Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. John, you were the Shadow Chief Secretary to the Treasury. I was, and I held it for 10 months. I was not numerate. I was not good at economics. I had no special skill in the field. And I spent quite a lot of my time conducting a campaign called Waste Watch, in which I was trying to identify examples of wasteful expenditure by the Labour government. Well, that was very much a political exercise. It didn't mm. require me to have any great Are you trying to get headlines saying, oh, they're wasting money on this again? Yes. Vote for the Conservatives? Yes. And did it work? No. <laughs> no. Britain has one of the oldest systems of government in the entire world. But nobody sat down and planned that system. It's composed of numerous bits and pieces cobbled together over hundreds of years as the need arose. I'm John Burko, and for 10 years I was the Speaker of the House of Commons. I've seen our system of government at its best and at its worst, and I'm fascinated by who gets to operate the levers of power and what people do with them. In this series, with the help of Deborah Francis-White, I'll be looking at different aspects of our modern democracy, how they began, how they work, and how much influence each of them has. And we'll try to answer the question, where does power really come from? This is Absolute Power. Hello to everyone out there on Her Majesty's Internet. I'm sitting here with former Speaker of the House of Commons, John Burko. Hello, John. Hi, good afternoon to you, Deborah. Top of the afternoon. Indeed, the very top. Now, this is Absolute Power, the podcast in which John is going to be my guide through the corridors of power, which he knows far better than I do, having spent a lifetime in in them. Thank you, John, for joining us. It's a pleasure. Now, on this episode, we're going to talk about the Treasury. Oh, it causes palpitations of anxiety. Does it? Why? Because it's all about money. And, yes. And well, I don't mean specifically or exclusively in me. I think that the Treasury is often regarded as the bogeyman in government. Now, you might say that I should observe bogey person. And why bogey man rather than bogey woman? Well, it's tended to be headed by men. Stop and it's it right regarded now. as a blocker. How un how very unusual it's been it's traditionally headed by men. Yes. Um, we treasury. never had a female treasurer. We've never had a female well, chance of the exchequer. exchequer. Never had a female chance of the exchequer. I mean, there's no need for one. Women aren't good with money. Um, Monstrous. I mean, I speak with heavy irony, but also it is extraordinary, isn't it? it is, sometimes you just wake up and go, is it still 2021? I know. It's so unbelievable. I feel like at dinner parties in Britain, you're encouraged not to talk about politics, religion or, or money. And we are talking about two of these right now. We're talking about politics and money. What is, in the sexiest way possible, John... The role of the Treasury. Make the, this fun. 
the role of the Treasury is to decide upon the required and desired level of expenditure, public expenditure by government and taxation, what the government should spend and what it should raise in taxes to facilitate that expenditure. In the process, it is preoccupied with, focused on, mm -hmm. trying to limit that expenditure because the Treasury sees its role as balancing the books, right? preserving the nation's funds. The housekeeping, basically. The housekeeping. Stopping too much money being spent. Don't run up your credit cards. Indeed. So, so it is the department within government that is most resistant to increases in expenditure and most inclined to say, thou shalt not. Of course. We can't afford it. There are other forces at work in government. We can't afford it, yes, or we can't afford it, or we can't justify it, or it's not the most economic expenditure. Or if you're going to pay for more for this, you've got to pay less for that. Yeah. If a government department decides it wants to spend more on a particular programme, the Treasury's natural instinct will be to start by questioning the programme and asking whether it's really value for money. Could it be done more efficiently? Have you squeezed every available juice out of the orange before asking for further so resources? So presumably they're not very popular because they're the boring so they're not very popular. people who go... And by the way, even if you think money on this should be increased, even if you think it warrants a greater investment, presumably you're proposing a compensating cut elsewhere. And so its natural instinct is always to push back, to resist, to say, no, not now. Well, so it's no, not, not a fun at all. place to work. No, not now. No, not, not yet. Ever. And, you know, it hopes to have the support of the Prime Minister most of the time. The relationship in government between the Prime Minister, who, by the way, is traditionally known by the title First Lord of the Treasury, mm. because the Prime Minister is the ultimate minister in charge of government policy, the relationship between the Prime Minister and the Chancellor of the Exchequer has always been important. And in modern politics, it's particularly important if you accept, as I do, that general elections often turn on the state of the economy. Mm. In other words the so-called feel-good factor, Deborah, or the economic optimism index can have a big bearing on how people vote. Now, it doesn't work exclusively. It's not the case that just because the economy is thriving, the government will automatically win the election, but it has a much greater chance of winning if the economy is thriving. If it isn't thriving, well, the government has to persuade the country that its economic husbandry is better than that of the opposition that is competing for power. But having a united front between Prime Minister and Chancellor is quite important. And in circumstances in which that relationship has broken down, it's sometimes been quite damaging to the government of the day. Now, I come from Australia, where the person, usually the man, let's be honest, who controls the purse strings of the of the treasury, yeah. and we can see where that word's come from, treasure, the pirate's treasure, uh, is called the treasurer. Makes a lot of sense to me. Mm. In this country, for no 
obvious reason, the person in charge of the treasury is called the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Why does that person sound like they're very good friends with the Knights of the Round Table? What's going on there? The Exchequer's rather unusual name derives from the chequered cloth on which the, frankly, confrontational audit process took place. The term Chancellor, of course, you know, is of wider application. The Chancellor of Germany, mm -hmm. you know, it's another name for sort of like the captain. leader or yeah. captain or head. And presumably that's where the word check comes from, as in signing a check, because it's spelt the same way. One would assume so. One would assume so. Rishi Sunak is our current is. Chancellor. How many MPs work for him in the Treasury? Ballpark. I mean, he will have a staff, of course. The Treasury will have a staff of, you know, into the thousands. I'm not sure how many thousand staff there are at the Treasury. As to MPs, he will have a ministerial team, which consists, there will be a Treasury Minister in the Lords, I think, I can't remember who that is, off the top of my head, but there is his immediate deputy is called the Chief Secretary to the Treasury. He's the deputy, and that person also sits in Cabinet. It's the only government department, I think, in which two members of it sit in Cabinet as of right, the Chancellor of the Exchequer and the Chief Secretary. Beneath that, there's the Paymaster General, these, there's the Financial Secretary to the Treasury, the Exchequer Secretary to the Treasury, the Economic Secretary to the Treasury. So there are something like six ministers... Whose job it whose is, job to, it help is to help Rishi Sunak. There will also be at least a couple of PPSs, Parliamentary Private Secretaries, who are not paid and they're not ministers, but they're on what is called the ministerial payroll, just to confuse matters, not paid, but they're part of what is called the payroll vote. That is to say they're regarded as members of the government and so they have to vote with the government. What right. is their role? Well, they're pejoratively known as bag carriers for their ministers. Actually, they're really the eyes and ears of their minister in the Commons. That is to say, it's up to them to have conversations with colleagues, to pick up opinion amongst colleagues about aspects of policy and to report back to the Chancellor and the Chief Secretary in particular. And, of course, there are a couple of whips as well, Treasury whips, whose role is to coordinate members and make sure that members go into the right division lobby in support of the Treasury. So in previous episodes, I've become an MP. Um, so imagine in this hypothetical podcasting world, I'm an MP and I think I'd like to work in the Treasury. Um, presumably, I'm an MP who's also in government, whose party's yeah. in government. What's my entry level point? What's my end? What do I do? Do I need a background in economics? Like, how do I get involved? You don't have to have a background as an economist. You don't have to be a trained economist. You don't have to be qualified in economics, as in having a degree or That's being lucky. an accountant or anything like that. Very lucky. That is, I don't have any of those. But it probably helps mm. if you have got some commercial background or background in statistics, background in accountancy. That can help. If you are looking to be made a Treasury Minister, if you actually aspire to be a Treasury Minister, a good way to start in Parliament would be by speaking in debates on the economy mm. and showing your grasp of economic concepts. But there are very few 
absolutes in politics in terms of what does guarantee preferment and what prevents it. There can be other factors. For example, the whips might decide, well, the time has come to give so-and-so a promotion and that person has previously been a PPS in some other department but has expressed some interest in the economy or the possibility of serving in the Treasury and the whips might think, yes, let's give him or her a stint in the Treasury. So that can happen. You don't have to have an economic background. It can help, but it isn't a prerequisite. Any more than it's a prerequisite to have a background as a doctor or as a nurse to be made a health minister. You may think that there's an advantage in people with some first-hand knowledge of the health service being appointed to be health ministers, but it certainly isn't a prerequisite. And likewise, in education, people may cavil at that to a degree. But of course, British government really is about decision-making and the despatch of business. Making decisions and dispatching business, i.e. being a good administrator, don't demand that you be an expert in a particular field. I think they do demand a basic intelligence. So, for example, one of the most notable chancellors of the post-war period, in my opinion, was the late Dennis Healy. Well, Dennis Healy wasn't a trained economist mm. at all. He had no background as a financial whiz kid. He hadn't worked in the city or been a trader, but he was an extremely intelligent man. On the other hand, you could take someone like George Osborne, and you may say, well, yes, let's rue the day that he became chancellor, but George Osborne served as chancellor for six years. He is not a trained economist. He has no economics degree, but to be fair, he's a bright guy. And so was he able to cope? Yes. I mean, he was very, very, very political. He had a very keen grasp of what he regarded as his political priorities. And I think he had sufficient intelligence to grapple with the concepts that he needed to understand. Does that mean he was a good chancellor? No, he was the chancellor of austerity, of course. But was he able to hack it? I think, to be fair, all of the people that I've mentioned were able to hack it as chancellors. So, yeah, there's a difference between I'm sufficiently able to do the arithmetic about how much money I'm taking away from people who can ill afford it. Yes. And, oh, shit, I can't use the calculator. What does this mean? I'm yes. crying. Please take this job away from me. I think it was me. Disraeli who originally said, because he had no background in economics and at one point became chancellor, they, meaning the officials, they give you the figures. Mm, I think I would have to be that kind of Chancellor of the Exchequer because my, my – look, I'm numerate, but, you know, I certainly don't have a degree in economics or any interest in one. No. I have no interest in my internet banking, John. I really no, don't think I should likewise. take this job. No, oh. I empathise with you entirely, Deborah. I, should I shouldn't take this job, but I am now embedded within the Treasury in this hypothetical parallel universe. <laughs> I'm going to be a lot nicer than George Osborne in as much as I'm not going to just snatch pocket money out of children's hands and watch them cry. Um, but I probably am also going to be uh, a disaster in as much as I will never know how much money I have spent. John, you were the Shadow Chief Secretary to the Treasury. I was. Is that a role you pursued? Or just one that was given to you from on high? No, it was one given to me from on high. I got that role in September 2001. 
and I held it for 10 months. I was not numerate. I was not good at economics. I had no special skill in the field. I remember at the time the shadow chancellor of the Exchequer, Michael Howard, who was my boss, saying that he thought that the fact that I wasn't an economist or blessed with huge financial acumen didn't really matter because he saw it as principally, as I think it is, a political role in which you are acting as arbiter of spending bids in opposition, that is to say shadow spending bids put forward by colleagues, and you're trying to make political judgments about whether a particular course of action can be justified and should be approved or can't be justified and shouldn't be approved. So does it require a, a hugely detailed knowledge of, for example, the operations of the city or the financial system? It doesn't. And I spent quite a lot of my time as Shadow Chief Secretary conducting a campaign called Waste Watch, in which I was trying to identify examples of wasteful expenditure by the Labour government. Well, that was very much a political exercise. It didn't mm. require me to have any great financial Are you trying to get headlines saying, oh, they're wasting money on this again? Yes. Vote for the Conservatives? Yes. And did it work? No. No. <laughs> it was a spectacular failure. Why? Well, it may have been attributable, at least in part, to my own industrial scale ineptitude. But whilst I am happy to lacerate myself, subject myself to an appropriate flagellation, I think it would be wrong to say it was all my fault. I think it was partly because, to put it bluntly, at the time, the Labour government was still popular and the Conservative opposition was not. So when we were saying, oh, they're wasting money on this, that or the other, on the whole, the punters thought, well, the Blair and Brown axis is rather a good axis. It's an axis working effectively and pursuing the priorities that we want. I remember at one point, we in opposition, the Conservatives, got very aerated about the idea floated by Labour that there should be an increase in national insurance to finance greater expenditure on the health service. And we said that this was an unjust tax and it shouldn't be imposed and it wouldn't be effective and so on. In fact, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown had their finger on the pulse. The public thought, yes, this is a good idea. We're quite happy to contemplate a modest increase in taxation if we are reassured that the money will be used to boost the National Health Service, which required an additional injection of funds. So we were on the wrong side of that argument. In fact, in my early years in Parliament, I spent quite a lot of time being on the wrong side of arguments, as I subsequently came to acknowledge, probably to the consternation of some of my Conservative colleagues, but I did have the advantage of being right. I feel sentimental about a time when people were saying, please tax us more so the NHS can be better. Indeed. Uh, it's it's making me feel a little bit sad. Um, now, so if I'm an activist I'm a or a concerned citizen, someone who wants to get involved more with my democratic process, how does it help me to know about the Treasury, the role of the Treasury? To be honest, I'm not sure that it does help very much. In fact, I think if you were to know about the Treasury at the start of your thirst for campaigning success, you would probably find it something of a chilling factor. You'd probably be rather discombobulated or even depressed by knowing of the power of the Treasury. I wouldn't recommend, if you have some campaigning objective, that you start by going to the Treasury, because the Treasury is the department that is used to saying no. Mm. 
And well, they say, will it cost? You if you've got a free, if you've got something that's not going to cost any money, you want to change something that's, not going, to, well, it's going to cost less money, maybe get in there yes, then and maybe say, get oh, in there. I've got a cost-saving idea. I've got a cost-saving idea. I still think you'd probably start with the what would be called the sponsoring department, that is to say the department responsible for that area of policy. And, if, and then you get that department on side... And then there must be a decent chance if it is both a, a desirable reform that is going to conduce to a better service and cheaper, must be a decent chance that it would attract the interest of the Treasury. Sadly, very often people's campaigning objectives do involve, almost inevitably involve, spending more money or money afresh. And so they're going to be difficult as ideas to commend to the Treasury, though not impossible if skillfully advocated by a government department, or if you start as a campaigning activist and you want to get support for an objective from the House, you would start like that. Now, let me give you an example. There was an amendment to the Queen's speech towards the end of my tenure by Stella Creasy, backbench Labour MP, fantastic parliamentarian. And she wanted to table an amendment and did to facilitate the opportunity for women from Northern Ireland to come to Great Britain to have abortions, which they couldn't have in Northern Ireland. And she wanted those abortions to be financed out of public funds and their transport because and the transport cost as well because that could be prohibitive yes she had i think overwhelming if not complete support on the opposition benches with the exception of the democratic unionist party from northern ireland but all other opposition mps virtually to a man and a woman supported her and there were some conservative members who did so as well what's the relevance of that well the government knew that it was beaten I selected that amendment because I thought it was a legitimate amendment to the gracious address, that is to say, the government's Queen's speech. I think Philip Hammond, who was Chancellor of the Exchequer at the time, knew that he didn't have the votes to prevent the passage of that amendment, and and therefore he gave up in advance. In Mm -hmm. other words, the matter didn't come to a vote. The Chancellor announced that he would effectively accept the terms of the amendment and make provision, and I think that has since happened, to the best of my knowledge. But, you know, that was a very effective campaigning initiative on the part of Stella because she knew that she got support on her side, that I think she'd done the homework. She'd gone around Mm. talking to people in other political parties, including government backbenchers, conservative backbenchers, I think, if memory serves me correctly, people like Anna Subri and so on, who supported her as well. And so she put the Treasury, really, put the Johnson of the Exchequer in a cleft stick. You know, he was in a position in which he knew that if the matter came to a vote he would lose, and he probably thought that it was better just to acknowledge the inevitable and make a commitment to finance the policy. Good on Stella Creasy, doing good work Really for great her, work, and yeah. has since been part of the successful campaign so that women in Northern Ireland can have terminations where they are and not need to do that traumatic journey. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. John, sometimes we have leaks from within the Treasury. So they leak the budget before the budget is announced. There was a recent leak about the green policy before COP26 uh, saying, oh gosh, well, if we save the environment, we'll all go broke. We'd rather be dead and rich, apparently. Um, <laughs> underwater counting our money. Um, how do those leaks happen? They can come about through a number of sources. In some cases, I think the truth of the matter is that special advisors operating on behalf of their ministers, sometimes with their explicit awareness, sometimes with their tacit consent, sometimes possibly without either will brief journalists about aspects of a budget. Why? Basically because people within the Treasury supporting the Chancellor of the Exchequer want to get their narrative across in the media. In other words, it's about trying to control the news agenda or at least influence or shape it. And so there is an instinct to try to get that message out on the government's terms before there is an opportunity for critics to get mm. the message out on, let's say, critical or opposition terms. That's one way a thing can get out and frequently does. Another way is through, let's say, a department that is in dispute or negotiation with the Treasury. One reason why Treasury-related matters are often subject to leaks, which may not be through the Treasury, they may not be the decision of the Treasury, the choice of the Treasury, the preference of the Treasury, is that a government department that is lobbying the Treasury for a relief on this or an increased expenditure on that will let it be known that that is the case. And there is correspondence between the Treasury and the spending department, and quite a lot of people are on the circulation list, and it is very easy for things to seep out into the public domain. Mm -hmm. So that frequently happens. It is very striking now that leaking from within government departments, notably of the contents of the budget, but much more widely, is taking place on almost certainly an unprecedented scale. It's difficult to say that for sure, because there are precedents of most things, but it is now happening on a very, very great scale. I remember at one time when, in relation to, I think not a budget, but the mini-budget, the autumn statement, George Osborne's autumn statement was very largely communicated to the media in advance of being announced to the House. And I decided... And I think I said so publicly, either in the chamber or outside of it, 
that the Chancellor should be required in front of the House to answer every single question from every MP on the contents of that budget. The reason why I so decided that he should have to stay in the chamber until he'd answered every single question was twofold. First of all, it was to some extent a punishment to the Treasury and of the Chancellor for the fact of the leak. In other words, I was saying, well, if you're going to leak in that way, I'm going to keep you here in the chamber until you've so it was responded sort of to every last question. It was a kind of detention, as you very rightly say. Yes, stay after school. And partly, I think I said this at the time, I wanted to hear everybody and to hear every answer from the Chancellor just to establish whether there was anything he had to say in the chamber that he had not already said directly or indirectly outside of it. Wow. And you know, to me, it was deeply unsatisfactory. My impression is that my successor finds it very frustrating too. You can make life more difficult for ministers by requiring them to answer questions for longer, by reprimanding them in public, by granting urgent questions to opposition parties or backbenchers on particular aspects of Treasury policy, which is inconvenient for ministers. You will be put to some considerable inconvenience and awkwardness as a result. It's quite striking to think how times have changed, Deborah, because in 1947, when Hugh Dalton was Labour's Chancellor of the Exchequer under Clement Attlee, Dalton resigned as Chancellor because of a leak. What happened was that he was en route, almost physically en route, to delivering his budget. And he was asked by a journalist on the Evening Standard, I think it was, for a little tidbit from the budget. And he mentioned a tiny little tidbit, either recklessly or thinking that it wasn't going to be written up until the following day, whatever. And it was written up that afternoon, that day, in the Evening Standard. And Dalton admitted that he had inadvertently leaked it. In other words, he hadn't intended it to be covered before he spoke to the House of Commons, but it was covered before he spoke to the House of Commons, and he resigned as Chancellor of the Exchequer. Those Today, were the days? that is unimaginable. Oh Today, God. it's not a question of what in the budget is leaked, it's a question of what in the budget isn't, isn't leaked. leaked. Yeah. So it is taking place on a chronic, industrial, mega scale, and most people deprecate it, but frankly, very little has been done about it. And that isn't in any sense a criticism of any particular speaker, certainly not a criticism of my successor. But ultimately, you know, it's a question of whether there is a basic self-discipline on the part of ministers. And, and whether there's the a culture is, of leaking or not. And whether there's a culture of leaking. And I'm afraid there is a culture of leaking. It's very mm. commonplace. <laughs> Um, we've got some questions here from our listeners. Fred W. from Facebook asks, why is the briefcase for the budget red? And who keeps it when it's not on show? Apocryphally, the answer to your question is that the box is red because that was Prince Albert's favourite colour. There are other explanations, but that, I think, can't be bettered. Liz S. from Facebook asks, is the budget like a manifesto in that promises are often changed or broken? Or is it stuck to more rigidly? The intention is that it should be stuck to more rigidly, which doesn't mean that there aren't changes in the course of the year. But broad commitments on expenditure that are announced in the budget 
are then followed through, sometimes requiring separate legislation, sometimes not. Is a budget like a manifesto, which can be ritually broken? Look, any policy commitment announced by the government can be changed, it can be varied, or it can be broken in the sense either that it is deliberately dishonoured or that it isn't as an objective achieved mm. because of other factors, extraneous factors. But a budget is an annual event, and so the government intends that what it says in that budget will be honoured in the course of the year. A manifesto, by contrast, is for a parliament, and so the vicissitudes of fortune are such that quite a lot of things that are in a manifesto don't get round to being delivered, or in some cases, you know, are... It's also a promise to get power, isn't it? So we promise this if you... A manifesto is a prom set of promises, promises to, to attract power. To attract power. A budget is something that takes place once you've got it. Mm. So so it's more likely the manifesto will be like, oh, let's promise X, Y and Z. They'll forget about it. Yes. I mean, sometimes during... Well, very often over the years, a budget towards an election has been a very naked attempt to bribe the voters. Mm. Let's promise free unicorns and rainbows for everyone. Yes. And we'll worry about how to do that when we come to the budget and discover we don't have any money for budgets. We don't budgets. have any money. We yes. don't have any money for unicorns and rainbows. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Turns out we were... Anyway, what we have got is austerity. We hope you like that instead. Um, finally, John, where would you put the Treasury in terms of influence in British politics? Where do they sit on the scale from basically irrelevant to absolute power? I would say the Treasury is somewhere near to eight. I think it is pretty powerful. It is the single department which has more influence on what a government department can do than any other. The Department of Health and Social Care doesn't have any significant influence at all on what the Department for Education can do or vice versa. Sure, they can take part in cabinet discussions about policy priorities and so on and so forth, and they can all chip into that discussion and try to influence the terms of trade and the direction of the political debate. But the Treasury is superintending overall expenditure and taxation within which all other government activity has to be conducted. So it is a hugely powerful department. I remember it being said when Labour got into office in 1997 by the Permanent Secretary at the Foreign Office to Robin Cook. Foreign Secretary in government, the Foreign Office doesn't have a very large budget, but the budget it has is important. And in order to preserve the budget and where possible to increase it as necessary, it's imperative to have very good relations with the Chancellor of the Exchequer, to which Robin Cook is alleged to have replied, well, I'm afraid it will have to be an exception in this case. Gordon Brown and I haven't spoken to each other for 20 years. Oh, wow. It was, I mean, fortunately, that rift, and there was a great rift between Robin Cook and Gordon Brown that went back to the publication of a pamphlet and the timing of a press conference years before where one was thought to have taken advantage of and upended the other. That was a really corrosive bitterness between them. I'm told, 
I don't know either of them especially well, but I'm told that that rift was eventually healed, and they would probably have been quite a powerful combination in government if Robin had lived. But for many, many years, there was an enormous, intense, sort of unrelenting hostility between them, to the extent that apparently they just didn't speak to each other. And I remember being told by my source that the permanent secretary thought that this was rather a discouraging response from Robin Cook. Mm. Oh dear, bit of a pity if you don't have a decent relationship with the Chancellor because the Chancellor does hold the purse strings and the Chancellor's going to be in a position to dictate the fortunes of the, literally to dictate the fortunes, or lack of them, of the Foreign Office. So quite powerful. So powerful. If you've got the Treasury batting for you, you're in a good position. If you've got the Treasury batting against you, it's an uphill struggle. So if I, in this hypothetical world, am an MP, I need to make friends with the Treasury. Otherwise, I'm not going to be able to advance my agenda. Yes. Thank you so much, John. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you. You have been listening to Absolute Power with me, Deborah Francis-White. And me, John Burko. Recording facilities were provided by Spiritland. And the music was by Hannah Ledwidge. The producers for The Spontaneity Shop were Ned Sedgwick and Tom Selinski. Absolute Power is part of the ACAST Creator Network and the House of the Guilty Feminist. For more information about this and other episodes, visit absolutepowerpodcast.com. Listener.